Welcome to Dharma Punks NYC, and I hope that your Tuesday has been a good one. And I'll try to add something of value to your day with tonight's uh, reflections and practice and time to connect. Having an in-person gathering on March 26th at Center Yoga, which is on 23rd Street, just off of uh, Park Avenue. And that's from two to five. And you can find the information to join. Go to centeryogaNYC.com. And uh, if you would like to support my work, it's uh, Dharma Punks NYC, the Venmo, and also you can find the PayPal on dharmapunksnyc.com. And there's a Patreon as well. Hope you will consider that. But either way, just enjoy having you here. Wherever you are, whoever you are, here we are. And I'm glad for it. So tonight, talking about not knowing and not knowing the truth, uh, how the brain can both be in denial and in acknowledgement of the truth at the same time, and understanding the sheer proliferation of how denial works and the value of uh, having a kind of awareness that cuts through all of the perceptions and beliefs and uh, inner thoughts that cloud and hinder our ability to perceive the conditions of our lives. So the Buddha, he notes, ditti, our beliefs about the world and the way we believe the world should be, our thoughts about ourself. These two arenas present profound obstacles to, this is one of my favorite phrases in the Dharma, yatha bhuta nana dasana, which is a, the Pali way of saying seeing life as it is. Thoughts about ourselves, our hopes, our fears are a kind of distortion that not only clouds us from seeing really important foundational truths about life, but also cause suffering. A classic example of a distorted belief that leads to a kind of denial or false perception is whenever bad things happen, if we add this thought, why is this happening to me? Then what we're doing is we're personalizing universal experiences. And no matter what experience you are going through, whether it's frustrating interpersonal events, health issues, pain, uh, problematic relationships, financial worries, these experiences are actually profoundly transpersonal. Then there are loads of resources, support out there with people who will understand and would be able to help us move through our challenges. In many ways, we spend our days drawing line between what we view as acceptable and unacceptable to hold in awareness, denying the unpleasant and the inconceivable, even if the, the unpleasant and inconceivable are essential for us to consider. Another example might be addiction. Addiction requires denial to be uh, maintained, whether it's substance abuse or any form of behavioral or process addiction. Everything from shopping to food to alcohol to sex to porn to 
gambling to whatever it is uh, to maintain any form of ongoing addiction requires a kind of rationalization. Uh, it requires disconnecting from people and loved ones who are concerned. It requires persisting in the harmful behaviors, oblivious to the resources around us. It creates a feeling of being, uh, of uh, not being able to do anything about whatever it is we've become reliant on. In cutting through the persistent denial, which the most uh, persistent denial is, of course, mortality, mortality salience, which is keeping in mind, bearing in mind our uh, our inevitable uh, demise, the fact that we are born without any guarantees, that there's no escaping old age, sickness and death. And when we try to deny mortality salience, we don't deal with the uh, one of the most significant anxieties in life. And rather than learning to to deal with it and to make choices that bear it in mind that are essentially authentic choices, we make inauthentic choices and the anxiety persists because we never actually confront it. The Buddha when he encountered aging, sickness, and death, had a spiritual crisis. And it culminated in his awakening. He saw how much emotional pain arises from avoiding, denying his own mortality. And I'll actually read from something he said um, uh, and how important cutting through denial was in his awakening. But uh, as noted, not only by the Buddha, but countless clinical studies on mortality, mortality salience, um, if we don't bear in mind, as, as Heidegger, for example, noted, our own mortality, then we make very inauthentic choices. We forego opportunities to explore. We uh, settle for... Um, uh, disappointing, unpleasant, lasting endeavors with the idea that there always will be more time to uh, correct, course correct. Denial actually starts very early in life. Children employ a defense mechanism called splitting, which essentially boils down to in early parental failures when we experience neglect or we find our parents scary or uh, their emotions to be too big for us to process. Children dissociate, check out, disconnect from the experience. And so they repress the memories of the neglect or, or unpleasantness that they experience. And this allows the child to continue to believe in the parent as a source of comfort and to continue to rely on the caregiver. And yet, even though on one level, there's a complete denial, the child will even extol the parent and profess how much they love and care about the parent that's neglectful. The child will un subconsciously acknowledge the neglect, the abandonments, the the lack of responsive caregiving, and they'll become increasingly preoccupied in their attachments or distance seeking. So on one level, they're acting as if nothing's changed, but on another level, emotionally, they 
do know, they are aware of the truth. Our early survival behaviors can become ingrained into what's called maladaptive coping behaviors that are rigidly guided by non-conscious, non-volitional realms of the brain. We'll think places like the basal ganglia and the striatum. Sometimes there's, you know, classic examples, of course, are basic behaviors like riding a bike, you know, in my case, playing a piano. I can play a piano because I learned it very young, but I can't teach it because I just, once I slow down and try to explain what I'm doing, it all just falls apart. But I can do it with if I don't think about it. Um, and that's a classic example of an ingrained implicit behavior. But another example of ingrained ex- implicit behaviors are uh, avoidance coping, a tendency to disconnect or hide from uh, social situations, times where uh we are uh have to assert ourselves we may want to be confident in public and yet still experience panic attacks when we're in the spotlight of others attention we may want on one level to have relationships that are lasting and enduring yet when it comes to romantic partnerships always choose people who are unavailable so on one level the mind believes it wants something but on another level it's acting in ways that are self-sabotaging. So the brain is capable of holding uh, completely different uh, agendas of which we are in denial of at least most of the time, one of the agendas, no matter how much we claim to want to uh, travel, if we always find a reason to not travel, then in essence, we're in denial about the fear that is undermining our goals in life. The brain can sustain two completely different perspectives or agendas at the same time uh, because it has to. Uh, One kind of perspective the brain has to maintain is a narrowly focused attention, always following specific things that we want to obtain and grasp for ourselves. For example, animals have to pick out berries to eat from a dense um, vegetation, most of which is not edible. So part of the brain has to be aware on finding these very single objects that we know are important. But we also have to have a brain that in the background can maintain an open, vigilant awareness for predators and or allies, you know, fam, uh, those that would be uh, safety and those that would be threats. We have to, in the background, notice environmental change. Um, so animals have one part of the brain that's focused on obtaining things that it needs, and another part, just this broad vigilant awareness. And all birds, mammals, and primates solve this problem by having two separate hemispheres, the bilateral brain. In almost all species, uh, by and large, left hemispheres or left brains dominate Uh, a consciousness or attention with that narrowly focused uh, attention. 
In humans, our left hemisphere went on to develop descriptive language, thoughts, we allowing us to make sense of our experience. We can connect with each other via words and ideas, and we can even make maps of the world using our left hemispheres and have uh, advanced uh, mathematical skills given it. But the right brain works in the background, always vigilant, observing the world, connected to the world, communicating its needs to us, not by thoughts so much as by feelings and emotional impulses. Um, rather, when we're connecting with each other, while the left will focus more on what somebody says to us, the right hemisphere will be reading their facial expressions, their tone of voice, their body language. And in all situations throughout life, we have both hemispheres working and a part of the process. The right hemisphere, on the, though, might be aware of something that the left hemisphere completely denies. For example, someone might... Uh, discern that their partner is um, hesitant or in some way lying to them. And they'll read that, their right hemisphere will note that by reading their facial expression, their micro expressions, their body language, their tone of voice. But their left hemisphere might be in total denial, not aware of the truth. And increasingly, those gut feelings that are uneasy the cold feet before the wedding, as we sometimes call it, the louder it gets, the more stringent the denial and rationalizations the left hemisphere will cook up. Uh, as Gazaniga, the great neuroscientist, showed that um, uh, the right hemisphere holds on to painful events from the past and doesn't forget, while the left hemisphere, the approach uh, connect optimistic hemisphere is very often when asked uh, un, un, underplays and doesn't even acknowledge the emotional pain associated from past relationships that have broken up or past unpleasant encounters. So the brain in many ways is set up to constantly have a level of denial. Uh, Gazaniga's research showed that you can get uh, someone to act by directly influencing their right hemisphere. The left hemisphere will have no clue why. Um, and they'll make up, it'll make up a reason because it can't accept the fact that we've acted in ways it doesn't understand. So <laughs> the twin hemispheres, one that's very conscious and thought centric, the other that's expresses itself through emotions, gut feelings, and behaviors, the part of the mind can know something that the other part of the mind doesn't know. Uh, and we see this all the time when, for instance, someone becomes engaged or pregnant or plans to move from one city to the next, their verbal responses can be very enthusiastic and, and optimistic and excited, but their right hemispheres and their bottom-up circuits of their brain might be very anxious about the change, about the consequences of the responsibilities. And so they might flip back and forth between the sense that I should be happy, but this feeling that there's something in me that's really not. Um, given how painful 
for a social species disconnection can be, uh, denial very often plays out in an extreme way when it comes to our core relationships. After learning of a loved one's loss, some will not say it out loud or even acknowledge it because there's a sense that so long as they don't say the truth, in the right hemisphere still feels the presence of the attachment figure. But having to speak about it aloud makes it official. Um, some people I've worked with in counseling will continue to fervently believe that they're in a relationship, a relationship that's healthy even, long after they've been emotionally abandoned long after their partners have demonstrated that they're incapable of showing up or being there for their partner. The emo their emotional minds will come to counseling knowing that the relationship is over, but unable to say that truth, they'll be living in complete denial. And sometimes even if you do bring up and recite the truths that they've told you that they're still in somehow denial of the fact that time and time again, a partner hasn't shown up for them. They have this classic ingrained denial belief, which is if, if X knew how I felt, they would change for me. This belief, as we'll talk about in a moment, that people will change for us despite all of their actions in the past is perhaps one of the most debilitating forms of denial. In other words, there's a sense that I know who this person is, but I still can't believe it. I still can't act in accordance with what I've seen. Um, those, uh, there's a deeply embedded in the mind of a defense mechanism called reaction formation, where uh, in dynamics where someone has power over us, and someone we might not like at all. Yet when we're in their presence, we might engage in fawning or complimentary behaviors, even though deep inside we despise them and we're confused by this kind of inauthentic expression. And it's essentially one part of our impulses at war with another part. The the first part saying, if I only act nice, somehow I can diffuse this person or make them act in a different way towards me. Um, and of course, the most uh, well-known form of denial is individuals who receive a scary diagnosis or a health concern uh, may deny that they've gotten, that they've heard the information. They'll act as if nothing's changed. They won't acknowledge it to loved ones. They'll hope that the issue will go away. In my own family, my mom had uh, multiple sclerosis for many years before she acknowledged it to anyone. She just lived under the idea that if she didn't talk about it, it would go away. Uh, and that's pretty common people with uh, who receive startling information that they don't, you know, deal with their blood pressure, if they don't uh, start uh, uh, taking care of themselves, that they face um, 
real, real dire consequences might still uh, deny it, act as if they haven't heard the info, uh, hope it will go away out of a kind of um, denial of its implications and also a denial that there is a solution, but it requires effort. In many ways, hope uh, can be one of the, uh, it can be beneficial, but it also can instill some of the worst denial that we face as adults. It's entirely normal to resist bad news until we find some strength or support to acknowledge and adapt to the infos, people who are facing a divorce or some kind of uh, bad news about work or relate, you know, uh, anything else in their life uh, may want to put off for a while um, processing the information. And sometimes hope that things will change for the better can inspire us even taking some adaptive actions if we think that there's that there if we have this sort of hopeful outcome in place but hope can also very quickly transform into a state where we actively block out information that's vital to making smart choices i did a lot of um uh hospice work um, and I saw uh, uh, a lot over a period of time of people, not even really the people who were sick, just family members very often in active denial about the severity of situations and, and real opportunities to connect were lost, real opportunities to make important decisions, to uh, address um unresolved conflicts all would would never take place simply out of this kind of hope-based denial that that things were not as bad as they seemed um people who are in narcissistic relationships with narcissists who belittle and gaslight them and isolate them almost invariably started out with friends who were actively saying, hey, this person isn't good for you. This person is uh, not a healthy partner. This person is not um, acting in ways that make you feel good about yourself. And yet they hope that their partner will change results in absolutely disastrous states where they wind up isolated from support, filled with shame and uh, a sense of unlovable because they've stayed in a relationship with uh, someone with active, aggressive, narcissistic personality disorder. And of course, I mentioned, yeah, that falls in line with uh, that kind of incredible denial that stems from childhood that if that someone, despite all of their actions to the contrary, will change for us. And that kind of denial, not seeing the truth, hoping despite being disappointed again and again and again for some kind of uh, miraculous U-turn in behavior will almost invariably lead to uh, years spent wasting uh, 
our precious time in relationships that are not healthy. So um, a couple of other, uh, probably the other, I'd say, greatest form of denial is the hope for divine intervention um, to ease hardships. I can only say that while I don't have a problem, if people obviously believe in a God and that gives them some sense of consolation, that's fine. But if they're waiting for a God to intervene to address challenges in their life or uh, take opportunities or um, to somehow intervene on their behalf, um, I always find any kind of hope for divine intervention to be very quizzical. Uh, call me a bit cynical, but every day 10,000 children die from hunger. So if I think that, if you really think that there's a, a God that's going to intervene on your behalf, I'd like to know why he's allowing 10,000 children to starve every day, why 6 million Jews died during the Holocaust, why 250,000 innocent civilians were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I could go on, but I just find that the hope for divine intervention to be one of the most astonishing forms of denial. So given how much denial there is and how endemic it is to the human mind, the Buddha noted that we need to have a profound form of insight that will cut through the layers of beliefs and hopes and fears and opinions and allow us to experience the truth as it is, namely, that we all, that everything's impermanent. We all uh, have a fleeting amount of time to grasp onto this thing called life, that we all experience both setbacks and lose loved ones and experience disappointments, and none of it is personal because it happens in various shapes or forms to everyone. My One of my favorite quotes by the Buddha is that something along the lines of, he said, it was unfitting that I, who am subject to aging, sickness, and death, felt so much um, aversion to encountering aging, sickness, and death when I observed my clinging, uh, something like the illusion slipped away and there was no longer any way I could continue uh, craving sensual pleasures, the path to the truth was all that was left. You have to look up the exact quote and access to insight with something like that. So what the Buddha is really saying, and which we don't very often hear, is that given that human beings don't act in accordance with how they think, they act in accordance with how we feel. It's our feelings that motivate our behaviors. It's important to have a seeing, uh, uh, a kind of ability to experience life in a way that's so vivid that it changes how we feel. If we can have a a kind of awareness where the truth hits us in such a profound way, like the Buddha, we, he could no longer pursue sensual pleasures to protect himself from the awareness of his own mortality. He had to confront it because th the avoiding of it created this sense of guilt and shame. So he, it literally became 
revolting to him not to face the truth. Um, when I got sober, when I was 34, 35, um, uh, it was many, many years ago, um, uh, the the thing that allowed me to become sober was not the awareness that drinking was harmful for me. That had been exposed in many, many, many <laughs> attempts to uh, forego alcohol, lost relationships, being lost jobs, uh, hospital stays. What allowed me to finally get sober was I saw with this complete clarity that created this sense of revulsion in me, the effect that alcohol was having on my life and on my relationships. And once I had that clear seeing that it wasn't the kind of alcohol or the amount or something about other people or something about me, that it was just alcohol in me causes suffering once i saw that everything changed but it had to have an awareness that was so visceral so impactful that it changed how i felt about alcohol from something that i associated with relief and ease to something i now associated with disgust and aversion so change real uh progress comes not just by intellectually understanding life but seeing life as it really is on a level that it causes physical changes in how we feel about situations a realization yatha bhuta nana dasana that's not intellectual but is literally felt as a feeling as a culmination that leads to a profound change in life and this is why when the Buddha had his four noble truths, they each require a kind of action for the understanding to be realized. It couldn't be just you understand the four noble truths. People can, you know, know that they're everyone's mortal and still not cherish life, not really, as they say, smell the roses. They can still go on in jobs that they don't really like and you know act as if they have unlimited time but when you really experience a loss or you really see which i saw several times uh close friends dying at a very young age of cancer um in hospice work then that kind of it hits you, the truth hits you in a way that's so impactful that you actually change how you feel. So many of the things that would cause me um, anxiety or worry after seeing the truth laid bare in such a profoundly confrontational, immediate, uh, uh, just way that it literally made me disgusted by the idea that I could walk around in the state of illusion. And that created a change that was profound in my life. It was 9-11 and seeing how, seeing it with my own two eyes that led me to give up my previous career and become a Buddhist pastor. Uh, I had to really just see how little 
guarantees and how important human connection outside of capitalist payment was to my sense of well-being. So the Buddha's first noble truth is that we have to see clearly as he did. He had to encounter old age, sickness, death, loss, inconvenience, um, disconnection from the loved, and know that all of these, there's no escape from it. And when he fully uh and encountered it he said he realized it and it he it forced him to change he became disgusted with the way he was living his life in a palace engaging in sensual pleasures his second noble truth um seeing that we make life even more unbearable by trying to escape the inevitable by chasing after short-term pleasures and becoming addicted to substances and behaviors as a way to try to avoid the truth of life, that these avoidance and addictions only made the problem worse, only made the shame and the sense of disappointment worse. And so he said that had to be experienced, that we had to see deeply that Whatever it is we're clinging to is a way to not acknowledge the bare facts of existence is just making our lives even more uh, challenging. And then the third noble truth, which must be acted upon, is there's a way to actually be live in accordance with life to no longer be in denial and that requires at first in renouncing as he said our addictions and our short-term pleasures that doesn't mean we don't have any pleasure it just means we don't always maniacally go to them and and don't pay attention to process and be with whatever truth is present in our life and the fourth noble truth had to be developed a life where we're causing no harm to others, where we're building true, deep, supportive, meaningful relationships, not based on status or power or anything other than our basic humanness. And learning how to self-soothe our distresses, our anxieties, so that we won't become dependent on substances or other addictions to do that work for us. Anyway. That's some of my thoughts on uh, the nature of denial and the importance of having a kind of seeing or experiencing that allows us to cut through and really feel, have an impactful encounter with the truth. And uh, one of the practices that allows us to do this in Buddhism is known as Vipassana, which is we just develop a bare attention to the impermanence of all experience around us. And when practiced, it said that Vipassana can provide that great clear seeing that cuts through all denial. Now, that's not going to happen in one meditation, but it suits us to practice it anyway. So find a really comfortable seated position, and I encourage you to look away from the screen, have the, yourself off the screen so that you don't have to worry what you look like when you meditate. If you want to turn off your screen while we're meditating or do something so that you don't have to 
you don't have to in any way present for others. And what we're going to do is just find that position that feels balanced, where you're not leaning forward or backwards, where your head feels in uh, uh, nicely balanced upon your shoulders and your arms can fall away from the torso without any stress your jaw is not clenched. When there's good balance in the body, the muscles relax. It's only when the body is really out of balance that the muscles engage to keep us upright or to keep us in a position. So see if you can find any kind of posture that allows you to release all of the held tension in your back, your arms, your, your neck, buttocks, and legs. And if you're lying down, that's fine as well. Just But make sure there's no held tension. Allow yourself to sink into the floor without any resistance. If you're sitting in a chair or a couch and you want to lean back, that's fine. But just lean back in a way where you're not forcing your neck muscles to keep your head aloft. Just find a position that requires no effort. Or just the most minimal amount of effort. Of course, if you are likely to fall asleep, if there's, you know, when you remove all effort, you fall asleep, then do sit upright so that you can be present, but also still sit in an upright position that's really comfortable. And then bring your attention into the sensations of the body so you're no longer allowing any part of the your attention to be concerned with anything that's happening outside of your body and just allow allow um sounds to come and go And just see if you can find a really comfortable place in the body to reside. For many, if you relax the belly, 
and just observe the inhalations expanding the belly, exhalations releasing. That can be very pleasant. Or you can watch the energy of breathing, the inhalation, the energy moving up from the belly to the chest, and then exhalation from muscles relaxing and releasing from the chest down to the belly, like waves coming into shore and then drifting away from shore. The inhalations, the energy moves up. And then the exhalation, the energy moves back down. And just ride the sensations of the breath in and out like you're riding on waves of an ocean. If riding the sensations of the breath isn't uh, relaxing for you, just find any anchor in your body. Could be the sensations of the palms of your hands, your eyes, breathing into and out of your eyes. Any sensation that you can land on as a place for your awareness to reside.
So the basic Vipassana practice we'll do is just using whatever anchor you found, whether it's your breath or another sensation in your body. And that will be the place you can reside with until something that is uh, claims your attention wanders in. Now that, of course, could be a feeling, could be a pain somewhere in the body, could be a sound, it could be a thought, a memory. And what we do is we turn our attention to it and we can reflect on one of the three foundational truths of the Dharma, which is one, just noting how whatever it is, this thought, this feeling, this emotion, this pain, this sound, it probably won't bring me lasting happiness. So it is, as the Buddha says, unsatisfactory. Or you could simply observe it in terms of its impermanence. Just watch it change, a feeling that arises that feels very strong of anxiety or being antsy or not being able to relax. And you notice that feeling, but if you really pay close attention to it, you really look at the abs the sensations at the epicenter of whatever it is, you'll note the feelings are constantly changing.
A third reflection simply that whatever is arising is not me because I'm observing it. This kind of disidentifying with all experience allows us to realize that not only are things ultimately that we cling to ultimately not the answer, that it's simply cultivating a spacious, open, kind, accepting awareness that provides happiness. But knowing that we don't have to take anything personally or identify with anything. So we'll just sit here and practice for a while. When nothing is occurring, just keep your awareness on your breath. But when something arises that claims your attention, just observe it from the perspective of this isn't going to bring me lasting happiness fulfillment this is changing and unreliable or even simpler this is not me it's just something arising and passing
So this has been a brief introduction to a practice of Vipassana, just seeing the impermanence, lack of reliability, ultimate uh, unsatisfactoriness or dukkha of so much that arises and passes in life. And it's meant to create a kind of clear scene that uh, allows us to cut through the denial that clouds our awareness most of the time. So uh, I'm now going to try to ring the bowl, which I will be able to do, but sometimes the zoom filters out the sound. So if you can't hear the sound, just imagine that there was a bowl ringing. <laughs> 